and welcome to the first episode of The East Meets the West. I'm your host, Rigor, and on this show, we discuss two types of films. One would be the films of the Shaw Brothers, which is a Hong Kong movie-making company, and the other would be a specific genre called Spaghetti Westerns. Now, the reason I, I came up with this podcast is that I listened to quite a few of them, and I've been looking for one about the Shaw Brothers. I found some that discussed Asian cinema, bit, but not specifically the Shaw Brothers. I wanted to know about that company. I also am a big fan of Spaghetti Westerns, and I've yet to find a podcast based on Spaghetti Westerns. And uh, once I introduced my co-host, he was actually the one that suggested, since both the Shaw Brothers um, and Spaghetti Westerns have niche audiences, it might behoove us to just do them both in one show, hence the name The East Meets the West. And the reason for the word The in the title is because I think there's already one out there called a podcast called East Meets West. So we're going to have, we're going to discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Westerns, and I think it's going to be a fun journey. Uh, quite frankly, I grew up watching these films, but I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about the Shaw Brothers themselves, the studio. I didn't know a lot about the history of Spaghetti Westerns. And so on the show, what we're going to try and do is go into some detail. We're going to do a lot of learning and discovering along the way. We hope you'll join us, and um, you'll maybe learn a thing or two. And we also would like some audience feedback as well. As of this recording... We don't quite have our, um, our contact info set up yet, and uh, once I get it posted, I'll put it in the show notes for uh, this episode. So, without further ado, I'm going to bring in my co-host, and we are going to discuss two films today, obviously, uh, a Shaw Brothers film called The Five Deadly Venoms, or The Five Venoms, and the second movie is called The Stranger and the Gunfighter. Kung Fu, Five Deadly Venoms. Kung Fu as ferocious and deadly as the poisonous animal assassins from which it took its name. Five deadly venoms. Five stinging ways to die. Pick your poison. You'll be stung to your seats. Five deadly venoms. A Shaw Brothers presentation from World Northall. Rated R. Okay, welcome back to The East Meets the West. I, of course, am your host, Rigor. I'm joined today by my co-host, Spency Domepiece. Spency Domepiece also co-hosts, um, What? You pronounce it Spency Dome Peast. Peast. It's just Spency Dome Peace. Dome Peace. Sorry, man. <laughs> he also co-hosts um, Then Is Now podcast with me, where we discuss uh, pop culture of the past and how it relates to the present. Uh, so welcome. Welcome, Spency. Hello. It's great to be here. Yes. Real <laughs> honor. Well, I'm glad to have you, too. I've been, I've been looking high and low for a co-host, and I know you've been kind of... Every time I mention things, you roll your eyes at me, but... I have to. I have to. It's, it's, it's our <laughs> dynamic. You say you don't want to watch TV all day, but it's we got to do it. This is our calling in life. It's your calling. In life. I'm the co-host. <laughs> but um, speaking of callings, I actually do have one other form of contact. Is I have a YouTube channel by the same name of Spencey Dome Peace. Uh, don't ask about the name. It's it's an age old nickname. Um, and nonetheless, uh, I basically just put out whatever content I feel like, mostly gaming, but occasionally it's just me sitting around doing nothing. And to me, that's the most hysterical thing in the world. So. If you're at all interested, please go check me out on YouTube. Yeah, and that's all I got for my contact info. You know, I can do my outro, which is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah, he's got a lot of cool things going on. Um, I did want to mention this one um, book that I picked up in preparation for this for this podcast. There's a few out there that I want to get, but at the moment I could only afford this one. It's called China Forever, The Shaw Brothers and Diasporic Cinema, and it's uh, edited by Poshek Fu. It's a bunch of... It's about uh, eight or nine articles 
about the Shaw Brothers. It's really kind of heady. I kind of expected it to be, I thought it was going to be more of a, um, a description of the films and stuff, but it's more of a description of the Shaw Brothers themselves, what they did to get up and running, and it really gets into the geopolitical situations that were going on in China at the time and how they were dealing with it. Um, the cool thing, I, I'm not going to try to be too heady in this episode. I, I don't want to lay too much information out there on everybody, but I did want to mention that the Shaw Brothers is a company. They started in the 1920s. They were making, um, they were making silent films, and they also purchased theaters. Now, back in the day, a lot of the major film companies in America also owned theater chains. So, like, if you ever see the Paramount in cities, like as a movie theater, those were owned by Paramount Pictures. Oh. Um, so the Shaw Brothers kind of did the same thing. And what's really cool is the, the one brother who sort of led the pack and was, was in charge of a lot of what was going on, was his name was Run Run Shaw. That's R-U-N, R-U-N, Shaw, two words, or three words, I should say. So... Uh, Run Run Shaw was a visionary. He was almost, not quite, but he was almost the Walt Disney of, of Hong Kong because he had a global vision. He wanted his films to be seen all over the world, but he wanted them to have a Chinese flair to them. So a lot of their films really up until the 1960s were either musicals or romance stories. And uh, we'll, we'll get into details on that later. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of focus on their kung fu films from the 60s and 70s because, well, first of all, that's what I grew up on. And when you say Shaw Brothers, that's what people think of. And there's a lot more to them. It's just a matter of seeing if I can get my hands on them for us to watch them or not and then relate them to you. I don't know. I know a lot of them are lost or not available on video at least. Um, but they sound like they're, you know, very interesting. The Chinese films that they, they created, there was a whole thing about, uh, whole sections about how some of their films were in Mandarin and some were in Cantonese. And it's just real interesting. When you delve into what the Shaw Brothers did, it's really interesting and fascinating. Some of this book is a little heady. Now, like I said, the title was China Forever, The Shaw Brothers and Diasporic Cinema. And what diasporic means is, it's weird because I actually heard that word used on a uh, podcast today which <laughs> I did not expect but it was um, it basically means like when you spread information or cultural things across a, a greater area and that's exactly what Run Run Shaw wanted to do is he wanted to get films out into the world but have a unique authentic Chinese flair to them one of the mainstays of a lot of Chinese films of this era are they have a specific moral fiber to the moral background about how people should behave and they illustrate how people shouldn't behave in, in terms of the villains and stuff in, in the films. So I always, I found that very uh, interesting. The first film that we're going to discuss today is called The Five Deadly Venoms. It came out in 1978 and it's directed by Che Chang and uh, he apparently is one of the most prolific of the Shaw Brothers directors. He's directed uh, quite a few movies for the Shaw Brothers. In fact, I think he goes all the way up to 1993. I don't know if they're all for the same company or not, um, but he's done things such as uh, you know, Duel of the Iron Fist, The Wandering Swordsman, I believe, is one of his more famous ones, The Return of the One-Armed Soldier, the one I'm sorry, The One-Armed Swordsman, also The One-Armed Swordsman before that in the late 60s. Um, so he's got quite a few movies under his belt. Oh, and he even did The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, although he's, it says he's uncredited. So I, I want I, that might be the next one that we do because that's a cool, cool one. We'll get that to get to that one. Uh, yes, day. faith, love, and hop. <laughs> no, that's that's a Mr. Vampire. It's a different Asian film, 
Well, we'll look into that in a little bit. Um, but Che Chang is his name, and um, it stars a bunch of guys. Now, we're going to be throwing a lot of Chinese names out there, and not everybody's going to know who they are, and that's why we're doing this podcast, is we're going to learn who these actors are. We're going to see them again in other films. And, uh, you know, we'll get to know who, who they are and the types of things they've done, and it, it's really fun. It's it's. It's so much more fun to get into them when you know who the actor is and you go, oh, I like that guy. I want to know more about him. You know, He makes sort of it thing. sound boring, but there are a few <laughs> actors that you could compare to American actors. You, we looked at a couple of them and we thought, you know, he's the, oh, I don't know. Oh, he's the example, Bruce Willis of right. Hong Kong. It's, like, it's things like that where you can really look at the movies they've been in. I know nobody here. Uh, che Chang is the only one I know and he's the director. <laughs> right. Well, all right. More specifically, what Spence is referring to is um, one of the main actors in the film is Philip Kwok Chun Fung, and he looks like an Asian Jared Padalecki. Star of he, the uh, critically acclaimed show Supernatural. Yes. I, I endorse Supernatural. Plays <laughs> Sam Winchester on Supernatural. He looks just like he would be his Asian cousin, cousin even down to the um, five o'clock shadow, which is kind of funny. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, we've also got a few other actors Su Chen, Lu Feng, Lo Meng, Johnny Wang, Lung Wei. And uh, Suen Shupao, another guy named is Dick Wei. <laughs> I thought it was kind of a funny name. <laughs> We're going to kind of gloss over that one. <laughs> and uh, Lao Fong Sai played um, the young guy. There's a couple of other actors, actually. Um, one of the main characters is not listed at all. The main dude who's sent by the master. Oh. He's For some reason, he's not listed, at least on the... Um, what's the website I was using? Was, um, the, oh, the Hong Kong Movie Database. So, like I said, we're going to delve into these films a little bit more. It makes me think of Mortal Kombat names and things like that. Liu Kang, Raiden, Johnny Cage, <laughs> Scorpion, Sub-Zero, Sonya. Now, I know I said I would do the synopses, but do you want to take a stab at doing the synopsis of The Five Deadly Venoms? I have had trouble with this in the past, but sure. Uh, the Five Deadly Venoms is a kung fu film, and it basically it starts out with a student and a teacher, and the teacher has basically explained to the student how he trained these five previous students and they trained in different arts there was the scorp there was a scorpion there was the toad there was the centipede the snake and the lizard so they were the five deadly venoms they were the was it the poison clan i believe the poison clan yeah they were the poison clan and he basically said that i'm dying and my soul will not be at rest until either they are all leading good lives or if they are bad that they must be killed and they come to find out that there was another co-teacher who had treasure, and now all five of them are after the treasure. And this one, one new student, the sixth Venom, as I'm just going to refer to him so everyone understands what I'm saying, uh, he is basically going out, and he has to find them in this big city. I, it's, it's an unnamed city. I'm going to assume it's Hong Kong. Yeah, it, well, it takes place in the past, so, so we're not exactly sure where it's like... I guess 17, 1700s, yeah. probably, 1800s around there. Yeah. And nonetheless, this student goes around. He has, to, he has to find them and any of the evil ones he must basically eliminate. And it's, it's a good story, I'd say, of, like, the five fighting styles and how they, some of them have certain abilities that come with the fighting styles. Um, Toad has, like, very strong skin, and he can resist spikes and things like that. His skin can't be pierced. Uh, Lizard, I know, can walk on walls, which is... Very cool. To yes, very that, cool that's to watch. A, yeah, so I really they, like that. so it, watching them all like fight was very interesting because they all had different different maneuvers, different ways of doing things. Well, let, let's just say we've got the centipede, mm -hmm. the snake, mm -hmm. the scorpion, the lizard, and the toad. And the toad is like impervious. 
to, to he, pretty much anything. He has a weak spot, and once that weak spot is pierced, then he can be damaged. But besides that, he was basically invulnerable to anything piercing his skin. Right, and we should warn you too. We we may accidentally give out some spoilers, so uh, you pause the podcast right now. What? Why are you rolling you, your eyes? If you haven't seen the movie by now, and you're if you're listening to this, you should have seen the movie. <laughs> I'm just well, saying. Sometimes people don't always have that chance, but yeah, um, they all wear masks too. And did you? I didn't um, hear. Did you mention that they don't know each other? No, uh, that's the thing. Is only um, the only certain groups of them. The scorpion doesn't know anyone. The third one, duh, but four and five are friends, one and two are friends, and then there's the sixth student, and they're all trying to find out who each other, they, they figure out the other's identity so they can either eliminate them or get to the treasure first. Right, because um, the ma- one of the master's old friend, Yun, uh, possesses a secret fortune, and the master's scared that the former p- pupils have turned evil. So that's why he sends out uh, the sixth one and to go and find them and so what ends up happening at the beginning of the film at least we'll, we'll put out there is that a fam the family of yun is is killed and tortured to try and find this treasure and um one of the deadly venoms comes in and is able to discover a map that leads to the treasure so it's be, kind of becomes a, a bit of a treasure hunt but it's also a mystery as to who is i think it's the scorpion yes the so scorpion the, we don't know who he is throughout the whole film no until like and, the until end. the end, until yeah. we find out who he was, right? And um, this is this is the Five Deadly Venoms is widely regarded as probably one of the Shaw Brothers' best films. Um, it it's it was done, you know, really in the seventies was was the Shaw Brothers' golden age, and um, I think Chang Che's got this interesting style of filmmaking that's very visual. I mean, the picture we saw was was beautiful. In terms of the color and the sets, which I believe that the Shaw Brothers used a, a reused a lot of their sets in their movies, which is cool. They had a whole thing built like Universal Studios, and you could make different movies in the same time period. And uh, you know, it's it's very violent, which it's actually I have to say. All right, walking into this film, now I had seen it as a kid, but I didn't really remember it. It was one of those ones that was always on the late night kung fu TV shows <laughs> that were on. Um, these, yes, yes, people. They used to play kung fu movies late at night on the weekends, and you were guaranteed every week to watch a cool chopsaki kung fu film. Of course, it would be, it would be cut, edited for violence, or you know the sides would be chopped off, and it would be pan and scan instead of widescreen. But nevertheless, they were still fun to watch, even with the bad dubbing. Um, we actually watched the dub version. We didn't. We couldn't get our hands on. on uh, any subtitles or it wasn't working. I don't know. I yeah, there was a problem with the subtitles. Yeah. I, I prefer subtitles when I watch foreign films. I like to do both sometimes. I like to hear the English but read the subtitles to see how close the translation is. Yeah, depends. Yeah. Um, but when I walked into this film this time around, I kind of had this vision in my head. I, I think it's from the, on the side as a hobby. I kind of look up uh, old drive-in movie theater newspaper ads and... Um, I remember seeing the poster to them as a kid, and I remember as a kid that the Five Deadly, Deadly Venoms had this stigma about it, that it was this real creepy and dark and scary kind of ultra-violent kung fu films. And it wasn't quite that, I have to say. It, it, not that I was disappointed in any way, but I, I was expecting a, one kind of film, and it was much, much not as dark and dreary and, and ultra-violent as, as it turned out to be. No, I wouldn't say it was ultra-violent. I would say there were, like, remnants of battle and certain moments of torture had a lot of wounds in there, but there was no real people getting their faces sliced in half. 
Right. Nothing he like wasn't that. overly gory. Was not, there were no intestines flying everywhere. Definitely not overly gory. It, it, if any, there was actually a point in the movie where a couple of them were trying not to leave wounds right. when they killed someone. So it was a scary moment, but it wasn't graphic at all. Yeah, that was intense. That was it took me a second to figure out what they were trying to do there. With mm. I don't know, if, should we say what it is or? I let's leave it up to right, the imagination. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, that was a, that was cool. And it's just something about the kung fu. It's it's poetic, in the way shot. It's like a ballet. Mm. You know, a lot of people say um, John Woo's films are are um, they're like it's violence, but in a ballet sort of way. That it's this fluid motion to the violence. That's I um one thing I did notice throughout the film was obviously it's the five deadly venom so it's five fighting styles I don't know if it's specifically made up for the movie but they um they would imitate the animals where they would uh, imitate the toad and imitate the lizard uh, and they all had different ways of doing that but one thing I would notice was when they would fight there were some points where sometimes punches were thrown but like it was all in that motion and so they're both doing their form. And occasionally they're dodging punches that are going to be thrown at them. But there are some points where they're just, they're not going, they didn't plan on connecting, but it's all one motion and it keeps going. Right. It keeps going back and forth. It's and, amazing. And some of them have obviously had more agility than others due to the, the animal they chose. But it was still impressive to see. Sometimes they would flip around. Of course, Lizard would reach walls sometimes. And it was it was really a quest, like a spectacle to see that they are such in sync and still trying to kill each other. Right. Which was impressive. And, you know, one thing I thought of, too, was um, while the, the blood that whenever there's blood, it's it's that 70s kind of overly bright red kind of blood, mm. which I think tones down the graphic nature of the film. I think George Romero did that in Dawn of the Dead. And uh, you see that in a few other movies where they they purposely make the blood not look super realistic so it's you're not going ew and you can't look at the screen it's not i i wouldn't do that but you know they're yeah. trying to attract audience members you want to go as wide as possible but still be true to yourself um and the other thing i was thinking and it just occurred to me now actually is they did a lot of wire work in this movie i didn't see one wire no i looked for a, cu a couple <laughs> points i would look through it, i'm like wow that's pretty good <laughs> yeah I, I genuinely believed they were sticking to walls. I genuinely yeah. believed yeah. they were sliding under different things and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. They were, they were doing ma giant jumps and flips, and, like, I was, I was genuinely impressed. <laughs> now, being someone who really hasn't... I don't think you've watched too many kung fu films in your, in your day. I mean, you've seen a few of the modern ones with Jet yeah. Li, right? And yes, I have modern kung fu films I've seen, but nothing from... N not, I don't explore them from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Right. And it's not, it, it, the times are different. I mean, we talk about on Then Is Now how, you know, t TV watching habits are completely different and the things they show on TV are different. So you weren't really exposed to these kind of films. What was your, I mean, you did watch a really good copy too. What was your initial impression or what were your, your um, preconceived notions if you had any walking into this film? Uh, walking into the film, I knew it was definitely going to be a kung fu film. So I was definitely like, you know, okay, it'll be really... But I had I have seen kung fu... Wait, 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 back up. It'd definitely really be what? It would be it would be a, a fighting movie. Oh, okay. So I was like... But I've seen kung fu films before, so I was like, okay, well, can it's the same as that. I kind of know what to expect when it comes to fighting. But this movie was different. Be, uh, also, I preconceived into the story looking five deadly venoms. I was... I didn't think of them being fighting styles. And they said it right off the bat, but I was thinking, oh, they have five different, like, 
don't know, some kind of poison throughout the city or something like that. And they said, oh, it's the five fighting styles of these five poisonous animals. I'm like, oh, oh that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And so when they showed the, like all the different fighting styles, um, you could see like the imitations of the animals. Like when Snake uh, fights, he is very agile, but his hands become the head and the tail of a snake. So he can strike you in different ways. And he like clamps down on you sometimes trying to, as a, for a snake would, biting you. Right. So I found that to be really, really impressive that they all had their different fighting styles and some were stronger than others. But there's like it was always that balance where some, like it was like rock, paper, scissors. You, there's no true winner. It was all a big circle. And that's I found that to be a really big merit in the movie. Uh, looking through it as from someone who's from this age, I found the quality to be great. And being me, I've grown up with older movies and old shows. So <laughs> the quality uh, of this was definitely good. I saw a trailer for it, but it was in the grindhouse style film quality. And yes. that was so terrible. <laughs> I, my only problem with it is it just it ruins the lighting. So when it didn't have that, it was on a rejuvenated DVD format uh, that definitely made up a lot of the movie because it, it, it let me kind of experience the movie instead of just watching the movie. Right, know? right. It didn't feel like I was looking at a screen. It felt like I was looking into their world, which is much what you want in a movie. Right. Although sometimes they want like 40 and they want you to be in the movie. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm comfortable <laughs> yeah, where I am. I'm good here in my seat. I don't need to I, participate. I like the window. I don't, need, I don't want to be falling through right. and getting, getting knocked in the face by a snake. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, personally, I, I really love when films have bad quality. <laughs> Even though it can be annoying sometimes, it just reminds me of my childhood. And I don't know if any of you audience members out there feel the same way. If you, you know, you grew up going to see these films at the grindhouse theaters in the inner cities, and you know they, they'd be playing these films over and over and over again, so they're all worn and scratched. And it's I don't know. There's just something nostalgic for me, anyways. About I can so. understand nostalgia, but for, from an analytic perspective, for a movie, is it's just it it kills a lot of the. Um, like, and it's not about the effects, it's about the actual genuine quality of the movie. Right. You could, I've seen um, movies that have come out today that just don't look like quality-wise very well, but the effects are perfectly fine. And this right. movie had great effects. It's just quality can go up or down depending on how you see it. And you know what's interesting about this film, too? Did you notice there really weren't any female characters? There was the family. But there was no romantic love interest in this film. Yeah, that was... <laughs> yeah, I guess not that you mentioned it. I kind of did notice that. But yeah, there was no um, female lead. Right. Which, I mean, some will argue is sexism, but it was it well, was like ancient China. Right. And I don't think it's sexism if, if the plot doesn't necessarily need it. Yeah. Like, like Carpenter's The Thing. There's but no it, females in that movie. It doesn't need them. It has, you know, there's no, you're yeah. not filling a quota. You're telling a story. Yeah. So, and that's, and I guess that kind of, I think that made the movie better it, because it didn't like, Okay, now we have the kiss scene. Now they're gonna go off happily ever after. No, they, the you you saw the fight. You didn't know who was gonna win because the movie um really sets it up. So when, uh, what's his name, Chen, the the old man who has the treasure. Yeah. Him and his entire, no, it's Yun. Yun. Yeah. Him and his entire family get murdered. So you really don't know who's gonna live, who's gonna die. Right. One of the five venoms suffers an unfortunate fate, uh, pre the final battle, and so. That was like kind of a big moment because you, right. know, you really didn't know who was going to live, who was going to die. Anything could happen. So I, I felt like that definitely ra ra uh, raised the stakes. Yes. Much more <laughs> than like if it was a love interest. Oh, we're fighting for a girl. It's like, I don't know. It's, it feels cliche to me. Right. So when you're fighting for like the treasure and especially when you're fighting for like your teacher to like avenge him so his soul can 
rest is something way, way different, way more personally. I thought it was more interesting to watch than a love interest. And I think we'll find moving forward that um, this is outside the norm of a lot of these films is that they do have sort of a romantic subplot going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the storylines, too, are, tend to be revenge based. One thing we'll learn as we explore not only Shaw Brothers films, but um, um, the Spaghetti Westerns is oftentimes they will cross over. Not cross over. What I mean is um, stories will be used in one genre or the other. You'll mm -hmm. see Spaghetti Western storylines done in, in Kung Fu films and vice versa. You know, and th there's a bunch that we could we could talk about right now, but that's that's getting off the topic here. Yeah. Um, but this plot, I thought, was very good. It's it wasn't what I expected in terms of, um, you know, like we said, that they had to go. That one guy had the sixth venom, shall we say? Yeah. Had to go and find the guy with the money, and find the other venoms. You know, you know what I mean? It was just a unique plot. And I felt that it was well done because you're going into a big, the Six Venom going into a big city knowing nobody. Right. He kept his ears open, like, uh, I'm going to use the term Splinter Cell style. He, yeah. He kind of, he eavesdropped, he, he did things, he, he kept his stealth up there. Yeah. He got into it and then he would see kind of big events happen and some, and occasionally one of the Venoms would reveal his fighting style and that's how you knew. Right. It wasn't that that people would talk about it because of course there's only five of them. The Poison Clan can do, can keep it under the down low very well. But when they reveal the fighting style is the big indicator. And they didn't use names as much. They said, oh, they took new names. That just made it harder for the Six Venom. They really didn't use many names. There right. They would call them. themselves, I'm number four, I'm number yeah. two, you know. Yeah. Now, the, the actors who played them, um, Scorpion was, uh, well, should we say? The actor? Yeah. Is that's not going to give away because there was a mystery behind Scorpion. Uh. Ooh, you're, you're right. <laughs> now that I think about it, because if you know his face, you'll know. Right, right, right. Well, I'll just read the the list of actors. Um, we've got. I'm going to do them in no particular order here. We've got Lu Feng, Sun Qian, Lo Meng, Wei Bai, and Kuo Chui. And then. Um, I'm go for some Lo Meng right now. <laughs> <laughs> we were watching that. It was making me hungry for Chinese food. Oh, same. <laughs> I was. I was thought about. I was like, you know, Asian movies make me hungry because I love Asian food. I love Thai food. I love Japanese food. Chinese yeah. food. So, especially uh, when they were feeding the guy in the prison, and yeah. I was like, oh, that looks really good. I want some of that. <laughs> um, and you had, you know, Yang Di was played um, by Ch Chang Sheng. Um, we're going to be confusing people at home, so I think we should back off here for a little bit. Um, but the actors who portrayed the five Venoms, they appeared together in three other films. They appeared together in The Kid with the Golden Arm in 1979, Invincible Shaolin in 78, and The Brave Archer 2 in 1978. And um, they would fi those films would get released with, uh, with a tagline that they featured the deadly Venoms in it. Oh. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, there is, I'm not sure which one it is, but there's an unofficial sequel to this. I think it was just kind of one of those ones, oh, starring the Deadly Venoms, and it was called The Crippled Avengers. And I believe it's, it's either Kid with the Golden Arm or the Invincible Shaolin. I'm not sure which one that is. Um, but we'll, we're going to do that one at some point because that one looked really good. No, it didn't. It was, um, they did rename Crippled Avengers The Return of the Five Deadly Venoms in some of the theaters that it was shown in. Ah. One thing to know, audience, um, back in the day, a lot of movies would be released, and then often 
they would be re-released with a different title to try and get new people to come and see it, even though it's the same film. Um, or they would try to capitalize on other films. Like, for example, um, uh, there's a horror film from Italy called Zombie, and that's supposedly a sequel to Dawn of the Dead. So when it came out here, I think it was called Zombie 2. So, because they try to capitalize on Dawn of the Dead, I could be wrong on that, but you know that's a that's a for another podcast. <clears throat> anyway, um, so uh, favorite scene at all? Um, favorite scene? I su- I suppose it would be that final fight because you just got to see uh, the mo- uh, four out of the five Venoms going at it, and you and um, Scorpion revealed his identity at that point. And essentially what happened was you got to see all their fighting styles, four out of the five fighting styles kind of really come together. Like Lizard would be on a wall and Scorpion um, like held his hands in a clop as he would use his foot as the tail. So he would be fine. He had great reach when it came to, when it came to fighting him. And Snake would try and clamp down and, peer, and try and bite you essentially and things like that. And it was just kind of really interesting to watch along with the six Venom. Who is like mildly trained in all five of them, kind of doing his thing, trying to just like, you know, I'm fighting for this cause with this venom, like, and it it, it kind of went all over the place because sometimes it would go one against three, two against two, two right, versus right. three. So it, I thought it was really good, and uh, I don't know. I guess it was it was the most like um, visually stunning when it came to the fighting styles. Yeah, personally. I agree. I agree. Actually, that was what I was gonna say too. Is I just loved when. You get, got to that moment where it was the culmination of the storyline, and you knew it was it was coming down to this final fight, and it was just it was really intense. I thought mm. when the characters showed up and were ready for battle, you were like right there with them. Yeah, you know, you knew who was who now for the most part, and you really weren't sure who was gonna live or die. Right. You knew you you know you're kind of expecting you know something to happen, and it was like. I don't know. It had a. It kind of. You kind of thought they tried to trick you. They tried to outsmart you. Like, like twice, I guess. Right. You know how you, you go in, you expect something, and then they do something else. You yes. expected them to do that second thing. Yeah. And then they go back and do the first thing, which to me got them, which got to me because I expected something to happen. Yeah. And it didn't. <laughs> and it, it, I thought it was done well. They did a good job with that. Um, the, the music and the sound effects I thought were really good. Um, <laughs> the sound effects were interesting because there was a lot of goofiness. In the film, like when they toss a coin to a local vendor and it, they toss the coin into his little container or whatever, it just made a kind of a funny sound. I feel like that was just kind of a break the ice kind of thing with the audience. It was like, oh, to try and like, you know, get you into the movie, get you understand their world and how they would, how, how some characters acted. Because I thought that was a good moment for, because uh, it was, oh, he's tr- uh, the vendor's trying to give a free gift to a policeman, but the police, uh, but... The second officer is like, well, the police can't accept gifts. I mean, as much as a great thing it is, we really can't accept them. So it's like it's just kind of what's a back and forth among characters and among the townspeople. This movie had a lot of extras because it was taken in uh, an older age uh, Chinese city. And so, of course, the marketplace is filled with people and you have to focus on the four or five characters that you only got. Right. Uh, Did you notice in some of the music was the scene... It, I'm sorry, what's the scene? Some of the music that was used in the Deadly Venoms was the same music as the main titles from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's that. I'm not, not going to attempt it. It's, we'll just play a clip of it here.
coconuts. <laughs> no, but remember the whole opening sequence of Holy Grail about the llamas and the people who have been sacked and those people, the yeah. people who did the sacking were sacked. Yes, yes, a lot of sacking going on. Yes. So, so nonetheless, the music was the same for that. I got to rewatch that movie. <laughs> Do you know they actually just used the coconuts because they couldn't afford horses? I, yeah, I believe that's, that's exactly That's actually right. why. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to the shop. Well, a um, <laughs> couple of last things about this film, um, just to wrap it up. Uh, first of all, I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it, you should get out there and go see it because it's it's really entertaining. It's a good introduction, I think, into uh, not only Shaw Brothers films of the, that age from the 60s and 70s, but also um, um, d- kung fu films in general, I think. If you're curious about kung fu films, this is a good one to watch. It's a good one to start off with. And um, one thing, when my daughter walked into the room, she she didn't like... The, the sound effects and the music, mm, which yeah. I thought was interesting. I didn't love it at first, but like once you kind of got into it and you understood how it worked, uh, I felt it was kind of good because it was um, very prevalent to the style. It wasn't something you would see all the time. Right. So I thought I felt like it was a good um, marker for them. Yeah, it was counter to the style. It definitely added a a, a whimsy to the film. That Whimsical. Whimsy that I didn't expect. So I thought that was interesting. But like I said, uh, seek it out. Get the um, the five deadly venoms, which also it, it's also known as the s- just the five venoms. If you haven't seen it by now, you probably feel like you've seen it. Yeah. Um, and is there any anything else? Oh yeah, here we go. It's also known as five deadly venoms, like the number five. In Germany, it was called die Unspiegarben five. <laughs> then it's five venoms, and then in China, it was called Ungduck. Oh, and there's another one, uh, which was also a, a tagline called Pick Your Poison, which I thought was kind of clever because of cool. the Poison Clan. And uh, Cool. That's one of the taglines. And another tagline was that was used was, Five Complete Strangers, the perfect inheritance treasure. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <coughs> so on that note, uh, we are done with this week's half of the show. Uh, we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about The Stranger and the Gunfighter, with uh, starring Lee Van Cleef. So if you haven't seen it, go uh, pause the podcast, go out and see it. You might even be able to see it on, I think it's available on YouTube, I'm not 100% sure. I have no idea. Okay, well, we'll talk to you in a little bit. You two are gonna show me China.
Okay, welcome back to The East Meets the West. Um, so we're on to our second half of the show, and we're going to discuss a spaghetti western film. This week we've chosen a film called The Stranger and the Gunfighter. It also goes by the title Blood Money, and it's from 1974. Um, the Oh, did we forget? No, no, we didn't. Um, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. The film stars Lee Van Cleef, who many may know um, may as... Yes, go ahead. He was the bad and the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's Personally, true. that is my all-time favorite spaghetti western movie. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Right. And we should preface this by saying, if you don't know what a spaghetti western is, basically um, in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, there were a bunch of westerns that were cheaply made, and they were made in Italy, oftentimes with an Italian cast and Italian Italian. Um, I didn't know they were cast made in Italy. Cast and crew. What? I thought they were made in like Arizona. No. That's why that's why they're I called spaghetti westerns because of they were made in Italy. Oh, well, <laughs> See? that's cool. Now you just learned something. Though. That's oh, why we're cool. here. <laughs> All right, write that down, folks. That's a good one. That's a good fact. <laughs> Tell that to your kids. You know, there, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. There were tons and tons of westerns made here. Those are just westerns. And back in the day, in okay. the 50s and 60s, particularly in the 50s, that TV, 90% of television were westerns. Yeah, I, you, if you ever watch like all these old ones, like Heroes and Icons and Me TV, they have like uh, the Gunfighter, a Little House on the Prairie. Uh, oh well, like yeah, the um, the Rifleman. The Rifleman. The gun, know, what did I say? The have gunfighter. gun, have gun will travel. I think is the one you were talking. The about. Wild Wild West. Wild Wild West. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of good ones. Rawhide. There's Rawhide. so many of them. Bonanza. Like Big Rawhide. Valley. I mean, it's just so many really good Western TV So those shows. are just Westerns, but we right. focus on spaghetti Westerns. Right. And if you don't know what spaghetti is, you need to go educate yourself. Right. Now, this film, Blood Money, a.k.a. Uh, the Stranger and the Gunfighter, was directed by Antonio Margariti. And Antonio Margariti, uh, if you... Is uh, uh, also plural for Antonio Margarito. No, don't listen to him. He's, um, he's directed some um, good, well, some well-known... Uh, well. He's directed some B-movies that in certain circles are well-known, uh, including Your, The Hunter from the Future, and uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, as well as Flesh for Frankenstein. Um, if you want, I'm going to send you guys over to a, another podcast that is totally unaffiliated with me, but I, I've corresponded with them, and they're really awesome people in um, The Bloody Pit, run by Rodney Barnett. He covers a lot of Antonio Margariti films, and I have to say, when I walked into this, I didn't expect to be doing a Margariti film. So if you want to learn more about the director, you're going to have to go to the Bloody Pit. He's got some awesome shows over there. So that's a free plug for you, Rod. Hope you enjoy it. Um, so uh, we've got Lee Van Cleef. We've also got Lee Ho, who, did, who plays um, Ho Chang in the film. And he is he's way more famous than you would think. In fact, he does show up in a lot of Shaw Brothers films. Um, he I'm just trying to think what he's most famous for. It's a lot of stuff that we probably over here we wouldn't have heard of. Um, for Bruce's Deadly Fingers, Night of the Devil's Bride. The w oh, he's in the One-Armed Swordsman, which is was directed by Chang Che. Yeah, that's yes. Shaw Brothers film. Um, he's in Fist of Fury two, and uh, you know we, he's got a lot. So we're gonna we're gonna All meet right. him again, I think. In so now Shaw that we have section. our two leads, should we move into a plot synopsis? Yes. Do you want me to do the plot synopsis this time, or uh, it's up to you? Do you want to do it? Um, mini, mini, money, mo. I'll do it. Okay. Uh, uh, the Stranger and the Gunfighter starts out uh, with Lee Van Cleef is a thief and he is breaking into a safe. And unfortunately, the only thing he finds in the safe is uh, pictures of naked women. Uh, and that does actually affect the plot, trust me. <laughs> yes, it's actually part of it the is, story. It is part of the plot. Uh, and in doing so, he alt also 
fatally wounds the owner of the safe. His name is Wang, I believe. Yes. And back in China, Wang owes a lot of money. And so his nephew is sent over to America. And they did a time, a timing thing here, which I'm sure Rigo will explain later. But he's basically sent over to America to search for the treasure. And Lee Van Cleef is uh, the thief. And he and what's his name? Chong? Um, the, uh, the Wang's nephew is called Wang. Wang, uh, Wang. Wang Kong. Wang and Lee Van Cleef basically become friends and they are both searching for the treasure and the treasure is the map to it is uh, different parts of it are tattooed onto the butts of uh, different prostitutes in the area and personally i think that is the weirdest thing on earth (laughs) but uh that is their whole goal and they go searching around for it and they ultimately get followed by a man named the deacon who is a bible thumper to the fullest extreme and he gets wind of the treasure and searches for it as well and so Lee Van Cleef and I forget his name again. Wong. Wong and Wong go on this adventure, chased by the deacon, searching for treasure. And this is um, this is one of those films. I think when you watch it, it's surprisingly good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. When I what did you think when I first told you about it? What was your preconceived notion walking into this film? You said it was a spaghetti western and that it had uh, like a Shaw Brothers affiliation and there was going to be kung fu with western shooting, which I thought was genuinely cool. So, you know, walking into it, I didn't really know what to expect. I try not to have high expectations for movies unless it's like something I like uh, another in a in a I want to say trilogy, but you know what I mean, a saga of movies. If it's a sequel, then I definitely will have some higher expectations. But for movies like this, I didn't really think of anything to look for in it. And then watching the first 15 minutes and seeing pictures of naked women. Butts. (laughs) Yeah, with tattoos on them. And coming to find out that's a major part of the plot, I I wasn't deterred, but I was slightly um, worried for the course of the film. I genuinely didn't know if it was going to work out well or not. But, you know, I give this <laughs> film thumbs up. Spency approved. So it's a good one. Excellent. And one thing I don't think I mentioned at the beginning or of this segment is that this is a co-production with Shaw Brothers. It was Shaw, uh, Shaw Brothers and Columbia Pictures made this film together. And that's part of the reason why we picked this is we sort of wanted to segue from the East into the West um, one thing we didn't realize is the similar plot of the characters looking for treasure. We being you. Yes. <laughs> um, so there's a thread right there as well. So it's a Shaw Brothers film, and it's a Spaghetti Western. <laughs> it's it's a Shaw Brothers film. It's a Spaghetti Western. It's both. So I thought that was really um, a good way <laughs> a good way of sort of segueing us into the westerns. Um, I think one cool thing about this film is it doesn't take itself too seriously. It there's a small hint of uh, you use the term whimsy. Yes, and whimsy. I I kind of there's a lot of truth to that because it, it the plot takes itself seriously, but like Lee Van Cleef and um, Wong like kind of know that it's not as serious as like like it it is but it's not. Yeah, and it's re- I think it was it works well for the film. I and Wong is he's amazing in the film. No, I mean not only is his stunt work really good. But he, he's a solid character. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not the typical fish out of water, stupid, you know, portrayed as a stupid person. He's very intelligent and manages to sort of manipulate the situation and get him into he, where he needs to be. Yeah, he has very well talent. Uh, China, uh, China is known for 
um, like math and things like that. They're very actually they discovered a lot of things throughout history with right. when it comes to mathematics. So um, Wong comes over. And Lee Van Cleef is gambling, and Wong's doing the math out. And On like in a back yeah, or something. I forget. I don't know what that tool is called, but he's doing the math out, and yeah. um, Lee Van Cleef is winning so much money. Right. Because Wong is just genuinely that smart. And um, there's a different point in the film where Wong shows off one of his talents. Good God. He, uh, <laughs> he shows off one of his talents of acupuncture. And yes. To heal um, one of the girls to search for the treasure, the treasure map. But it was he, kind of a ruse to get to see the tattoo. But it worked, though. Right. That's the thing. And I, th I found it to be really interesting. He definitely wasn't accustomed to our culture, but he wasn't stupid by any means. He, he, um, he found, oh, Lee Van Cleef is in jail. What does he go and do? Starts a bar fight. Right. Goes into a place, no <laughs> Chinese thought. Okay, walks in. Well, it was, well no, the, the place said, um, what was it? It had it written down, no Chinese allowed, no dogs unless you are blind. And so he decides, well, one out of two ain't bad. So he, he pretends he's blind, but he's told to leave by the bartender. So then he's attacked by two cowboys and, you know, beats them, beats them up with his uh, kung fu skills. But he brings a dog in with him. Yeah. And he's like, well, the dog, you know, the dog's not supposed to be unaccompanied, so I'm accompanying him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just worked out. And um, Wong really showed off a lot of intelligence. Not to say that any... Uh, like uh, Lee Van Cleef was unintelligent by any means, but he had definitely had a lot of academic skills that really weren't accustomed to the area, at least of, of Western America back right. at that time. There was no centralized public schools. There was no, you learned from the land. Yes. And, you know, Loli, um, the actor Loli who plays Wong, he was also in uh, Five Fingers of Death and Executions from Shaolin, which, which both are widely regarded as really good kung fu films. Mm. Um, I think he did. A, he does a great job as the character here, and also um, Lee Van Cleef is uh, in a different turn here. And instead of playing his usual villain, uh, he's he's kind of a I don't even want to say an antihero. He's kind of a good guy in this. He well, he is a thief, so he's a criminal, but he's a good person. Unlike Good the Rabbit, like where he is both a criminal and a bad person. Right. So yeah, it is kind of lopsided, but his occupation isn't too far off in his mo in the in comparing the two movies. At least those are the only two that I've seen Lee Van Cleef. Right. I've probably seen him in other things, but you know what I mean. Well, like for me personally too, growing up, I knew who he was. I'd seen him in the movies, but to me, he was always the Master Ninja, which was a TV show where he was the master, and Tim I think Timothy Van Patten was the kid who became he becomes the student, and <sighs> it you. Well, you, if you ever see it, those of you at home are listening, you, your, um, your best bet is to catch it on Mystery Science Theater, on the original Mystery Science Theater series. They watched a few Master Ninja episodes. Who doesn't love Mystery Science Theater <laughs> 2000? We may have to find a Spaghetti Western on uh, MST3K. I'm sure they did one. I just can't recall They've off the top of my head. They've done at least one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, and he's, you know, he's usually very serious. Lee Van Cleef usually plays a serious character, very stoic. And in this, he was, he was funny. He was serious, but he wasn't like the... Like he he took his character seriously as an actor, but his character wasn't a serious person. Right. He would just, of course, he he doesn't want to like get hung for breaking into a safe, of course. But he does. But he does like you know able to understand a good joke when the time comes. He's able to kind of laugh along with uh, Wong. Yeah. So for <laughs> certain things, when he tries to explain the concept of uh, a woman's behind to Wong. Yeah, and why the tattoo and that the tattoo's there? Well, Wong, they're in the prison, and Wong reads. There was a, one of the things that was in the safe, aside from the pictures, was a fortune cookie. And when you open it up, it said, um, uh, "Hold on, where was that? I had that written down here." 
Oh, yeah. When he opens up the fortune cookie, it says, at the bottom of every, for- of every woman is a fortune. And Wang, Wang goes, what mean bottom? And Dakota goes, Dakota's the leaving Cleef's character. He goes, bottom? Ass. <laughs> and so there are funny moments where Wong is like asking women to see their ass. And it's very awkward. <laughs> it, it gets to a point, though, where you notice a pattern between all the women because they all get mad that he doesn't do anything. He just, right. he just looks, he just looks for the tattoo, finds it, and then moves on. And they're like, well, come on. <laughs> And as more characters <laughs> in the film are starting to learn about this treasure, they're doing it too. And the women are starting to get frustrated that all they do is just take a look at their butt and then they leave. <laughs> <laughs> they are prostitutes after all. Right. They, they want to make some money. <laughs> so they're not putting their, I guess they're not putting their skills to good use. <laughs> Either that or they shouldn't have trusted Wang. Yeah. Now, one thing I really liked about this film personally was the music. It was kind of, there was a little, you know, 70s waka waka in there. <laughs> Which I thought was cool. I didn't quite expect that. I, I thought it would be more like a, um, like a Hugo Montenegro or an Marconi kind of soundtrack. Mm, mm. Yeah. The sound effects uh, were like kind of... In a Kung Fu Shaw Brothers film, of course, we talked about sound effects in Five Deadly Venoms. There was one or two, I suppose, that kind of were Shaw Brothers style for things like that. But there really wasn't a lot, there really wasn't a lot of, I guess, um, sound effects that didn't really uh, add that didn't apply to the situation at hand. Right. There really wasn't that many kinds of things. One thing I, uh, oh, I was just about to say something, and you mentioned music, what it was. Oh, um, something I've noticed in modern movies that take place in uh, like periods of time that are not from, oh, obviously, that aren't modern times. Good God, I can't speak today. They have <laughs> in a, the past. There's a, there's a character, like usually it's, a, it's not a main character, and it's kind of a side character, but they... They, you can kind of see them fitting into the modern age. You can definitely see them kind of having like modern day kind of ideologies, the way people, they kind of think the way we would think. You don't see a lot of that in spaghetti westerns. You don't see a lot of that in kung fu films. They really put you in that time. Right. And once you acclimate to it, like with any movie, uh, I have one in mind, but I'm going to say just not because it's, it's not relevant. But once you acclimate to the environment that, they're, that the filmmakers are putting you in, you really get into it. There's nothing really taking you out of it. Right. Which I, which I enjoy about the Shaw Brothers and most Spaghetti Westerns. Right. And, uh, you know, it just shows, too, uh, um, Anthony, uh, Antonio Margariti, um, which he used the pseudonym Anthony Dawson here, um, it just shows you, you he had a wide range as a director. He could do anything. I mean, he used, like you just said, he was able to direct these kung fu scenes as if it were made in Hong Kong. Mm. So I don't know if maybe he had some guidance or if there was, you know, maybe they had a representative or a stunt coordinator or something from over there. I'm sure they had a stunt they must coordinator. Have, yeah. But, but the way it worked also is like something I've noticed is in these movies, when somebody gets knocked down, like, oh, like, oh they get knocked down o- over a table, they don't stay down from one hit. They actually get up right. and proceed to swarm Wong more often than not. And of course, he'll he'll knock them out. But you get to see each knockout. You get to see each character fall to the ground because he's been hit so hard. Right. It, it's not it's not like the whole oh one hit one guy's down kind of thing. Yeah. And I I enjoy that sometimes when it's like when it makes sense like oh if it's a a super powered character if he's the one like from Matrix. Right. Right. But I like it when it's when it's just a person to person fight and. The human spirit says, get up and fight him again. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I always liked that. Yeah, they did a really good job with that. I, I like, I'm, I have a good taste of the Shaw Brothers now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, now, you know, that's the thing. If you're listening at home, 
you know, that's why we're doing this podcast is so that you can take this journey with us and enjoy these films, which are really, some of them aren't great, but some of them are amazing, and particularly like Shaw Brothers, getting back to them for a second. Most of their movies are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, with Spaghetti Westerns, it can be hit or miss, and we'll discover that as we go. I Just because there's so many different ones with so many different production mm-hmm. companies. Yeah, and there's different... Um and there's different kind of things that happen. There's so many factors in a spaghetti western because like, sometimes it's a gunfight, sometimes it's a fist fight. But when it comes to like, kung fu, it's like most of the fist fights are going to be kung fu and then there's going to be occasional shooting. And they did have that. They did have Lee Van Cleef's kind of moment with the pistol and he, he, uh, the quick draw right. at the end. And I was like, that's, that's what I wanted to see out of it. They, they had it at the right time because you got to see Wong experience America and then at the end, Lee Van Cleef had his glory. Right. Which was cool. And, you know, that makes me think, too, how this film came about at a time. It was 1974. It was the height of the popularity of of kung fu films. Mm. And it's one of those things where everywhere you looked, somebody was trying to, you know, whatever the popular thing is at the moment, people try to inject that into their films or movies or TV shows or whatever. So, you know, if it's Halloween, there's always a Halloween episode of a TV show, or almost always. Um, And in this case... You know, they injected kung fu into a western, which I thought it worked brilliantly in this. I, I feel like situation. it wasn't they injected it; it was they meshed the two. Right. It really wasn't right. more That's like true. It, That's it really a, didn't feel right. like they were kind of at, they were adding it for flair because I've seen a lot of movies where they will make it kind of space age because Star Wars had just come out. Right. It's like I, we're not going to talk about the Manitou. I was just going <laughs> to say the Manitou. <laughs> we're not going to talk about that, William Girdler. Leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> back to the uh, um, Shaw Brothers for a second is. That's what I like. Is they didn't. The, it was a. It was a co-production. It wasn't. Oh, let's add some kung fu and just for a for a wider audience. It was. It was a half and half. It was what you wanted. It was the wild west with the with the Chinese foreigner, but no, but no character fell out of place. Right. That's what I liked about it. Nothing really felt too. It wasn't forced. No, nothing. The, it's a famous phrase these days. Is nothing was a force. Right. Nothing. Nothing <laughs> was. No, nothing really. Um, kind of threw a wrench into the into the cogs. Yeah, that's, I, I agree 100% with that assessment of it. it. It isn't just injected with Kung Fu. It's, it's part of the fabric of the plot. And did it make you think of a modern Western film that had Chinese connections, as, as it were? Uh, bless me, Jackie Chan. But yes, uh, Shanghai Noon, Shanghai Nights, those two movies did come to mind. Yeah. Which was um, Jackie Chan was from China and he came to America met Owen Wilson, and they went on whatever adventure. Uh, hopefully, we'll cover those movies. Right, yeah. Future. I think it's not quite a spaghetti Western, but... You know, no, we'll but it was a Western. It definitely was a Western. Yeah. And it was, it, it's kind of actually a similar uh, plot line of... Um, well, at least in the second one, is avenging someone from your past and deal, and then meeting the Americans. Right. We could do it maybe as a... As a um, like a bonus episode or something. We'll have to talk they're, about But they're more one. modern movies. They're not 60s and 70s. Jackie Chan is... Still doing great movies. Still making. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's got some new ones coming out. Um, but anyways, uh, Jackie Chan's done in this. Uh, one of the last things I wanted to touch on was the we had this conversation before the podcast, and it's kind of embarrassing for me, but the title of the film, the Italian title of the film is La Dove Non Bate Il Sole. And when that tr- what that translates to is Where There Is No Sun. And I said, oh, where the sun don't shine. And I went, oh... <laughs> I was, I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. I was just thinking, why, why is there no sun? I don't get that. Why is it called that? 
Where the sun don't, don't shine. shine. <laughs> now I get it with your butt. Where the sun don't shine. Yes, I. I, I think that's what I'm it a like. A little um, slow today, I guess. It's what it. Well, it literally translates is different, but of course, when you meet other languages, I've actually been trying to learn German. Uh, but so when you meet other th- other languages, it's very formal. So when you say when the sun don't shine, it'll translate to that. Right. Because that's what it means. So uh, there you go, Rigo. You learned something today, too. Yeah, well, there you go. We both learned something new today. So um, so we've got, you know, Stranger and the Gunfighter. It's, you know, it's a combination of some um, spaghetti westerns, some, a little bit of comedy, and action-packed kung fu films. It's, it's just a really fun, enjoyable film. I highly recommend you seek it out as best quality as you can. Uh, singular best ending to any movie I've ever seen. It has a lot. Okay, maybe second best, but there was a great. There's a great ending to this movie. I'm not gonna reveal it because it was so predictable, but you wouldn't realize it. And I love it. And that's where I'm gonna leave my synopsis of this film. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you at home for joining us today on our first episode of The East Meets the West. As we go on this journey, we're gonna learn about the Shaw Brothers films of the 60s and 70s in particular, and about Shaw Brothers themselves. We're also gonna learn about spaghetti westerns. We'll get more background information and, and uh, maybe you know um, uh, what was going on at the time when these films were made, how they fit into you know what was uh, popular at the time, what was political at the time. We're, we're not gonna get too heady, but we are gonna have some fun. We're gonna we're gonna watch some fun movies and we're gonna uh, enjoy some kung fu and some some uh, gunfighting. I, I was gonna say karate fighting, but. I <laughs> some kung gun fighting kung gung fu some gun fu gun fu alright and uh, that's it our contact info is uh, on the sh- in the show notes on the website thank you for joining us we'll see you next time you know we should have called it that gun fu that's what we should have called the podcast I, that's a good idea I hadn't even thought of that well, you know well see you next week there you go <laughs> Practice your arm strength. You develop all the basic moves now. Your granddad used his fists to master all who opposed him anywhere and rock the world. world, 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 world.